This is the second episode of Edwin Morgan's Second Life, a podcast about Scotland's first macker, or poet laureate, by me, Ishbel McFarlane. I live in the west end of Glasgow, in an attic flat with my husband, Tommy, and my baby, me. Tommy and I both work from home, mostly because of the pandemic. We take turns taking the baby out so the other parent can work. At 17 months old, tanking around parks and paths, quacking at ducks and woofing at doggies, May's hardly a baby at all. The worn roots between my flat and every swing or roundabout or wobbly frog seat thing has changed Glasgow for me. While I used to walk the routes from my flat to the subway station or bus stop to get to classes or meetings or shows to go elsewhere, I've barely been more than a mile from the flat since March. My place has become entirely defined by how far I can go with the baby in the carry rucksack. A circle encompassing the skate park play park, the Anne play park, the botanics play park and the happy park. The circle also encompasses pubs, friends' flats, cafes, a cinema, a theatre, bookshops. But those are places where I used to go. My circle also includes at its very edge, Edwin Morgan's flat at Whittingham Court, just off Great Western Road. Morgan lived over half of his life in that flat, breaking away from his parents' house at the age of 42 and finding independence, finding happiness and finding love in the form of John Scott. And in the form of a number of other men. Morgan and Scott met at Green's Playhouse, an enormous cinema and entertainment complex at the top of Renfield Street in the city centre, where the Cineworld stands now. Green's was Europe's largest cinema by number of seats, while the current Cineworld is the world's tallest. Such incredibly Scottish records. Ones that are both quite impressive and which you will only remember as Cineworld is the something of cinemas, not the biggest, most ice creams, something. When it was Green's Playhouse, it could accommodate 10,000 customers. And among those 10,000 people, Edwin met John. Morgan recounted with a laugh how, during their relationship, they bumped into each other one Friday night at Green's, both waiting for other dates. One morning in September, I set out with me in the rucksack to go to the botanics. We also live off Great Western Road, very near Glasgow University, where Morgan taught, and it occurred to me that maybe Morgan would walk past our flat to get to his desk sometimes. I wondered if he walked the same way each day, or if he mixed it up. Did he, like me, try to find tiny efficiencies 
so that the route became smoother and smoother, faster and faster. I often take a wee shortcut over Alfred Terrace, that bit above the spar, where you can look right down Great Western Road and wonder if you should maybe just let it lead you west and north, past Annie's Land and Drum Chapel, past Old Kilpatrick Milton, changing its name from the Great Western Road to the A82 and land you on the shores of Loch Lomond. But instead of Loch Lomond, I decided to walk to Whittingham Court. We started our Whittingham Court journey on the pavement beside the Great Western Road. It's noisy and boring, so we slipped behind the trees and walked along the various imposing terraces, which are very Glasgow, but which name themselves as somewhere else. Kew Terrace, Belhaven Terrace, Lancaster Terrace, Devonshire Terrace. The houses are grand, none grander than the Alexander Greek Thompson buildings on Great Western Terrace. When I first moved to Glasgow from Kinrosshire, my grandma asked if I'd seen Great Western Road. Grandma was a farmer's daughter and farmer's wife, and her best friend was a wartime evacuee from Glasgow. Visiting the inevitably named Auntie Margaret in Garnet Hill, Grandma had always thought of Great Western Road as a really great road. Noble, impressive, to be mentioned along with Pall Mall or Broadway. At the point where she asked me, I'd only been at the city end, all kitchen shops, tattoo parlours and dilapidated tenements, and I didn't get it at all. But here, with my daughter identifying doggies, I felt that greatness, that stature. That was not at all part of my old view of Glasgow. In the last episode, I talked about how as a teenager, there was a gap in my mind where Edwin Morgan should be. The first thing that started to fill that gap came around 2002. I got a free CD out of a Sunday newspaper of songs by the Scottish band Idlewild. I owned five or six CDs at that time. A Beatles compilation, Spice Girls, Mozart, the Barbie Girl single, yes, the single, and Catatonia's album International Velvet. Still, obviously, an absolute banger. I was about 15 and had come to feel that it was my personal duty to know more about cool music, a decision which utterly terrified me. One of the tracks on this free CD was the title track of the album, The Remote Part. On that track was a fairly inaudible recording of Edwin Morgan reading a poem he had written for the band. It was the climax of the album and of that free CD in its cardboard envelope. It was so important that the album's promotional tagline, what skinny, choppy-haired girls wore on their t-shirts, was support your local poet. It was incredibly cool. And I was therefore terrified. It isn't in the mirror, it isn't on the page, 
vibration, pushing through the walls of dark imagination, finding no equation. There's a red road rage, but it's not road rage. It's asylum seekers engulfed by a grudge. Scottish friction, Scottish friction. It isn't in the castle, it isn't in the mist. It's a calling of the waters as they break to show the new black death with reactors aglow. Do you think your security can keep you in purity? You will not shake us off above or below. Scottish friction, Scottish friction. Edwin Morgan was Glasgow to me. Until I moved to Glasgow age 23, I had never lived more than about an hour from it, but I could count the times I'd visited on my fingers. I was from the East Coast, my life orientated north towards Perth as a local big town, and then later to the south for university in Edinburgh. I was scared of Glasgow. Not because of any idea of a hard man, Glasgow kiss, glass you in the street sort of place, but because I did not belong. Didn't know the rules, would get it wrong. Glasgow was cool and I was not. It was a club night where I fell out of my depth and wanted to go home. I felt, if I'm honest, I felt like Glasgow would see through me. That I wouldn't be able to keep up. And it really did feel like another place. Just before I moved to Glasgow, I did a solo interrailing trip from the north of Denmark, south, through Europe to Bratislava. I realised after a few days of living in Glasgow that I had been inadvertently not using my mobile phone because I still thought of myself as abroad. What were the roaming charges when you phoned across Scotland's Iron Curtain? Glasgow was cool, and Morgan was Glasgow. I'd studied his poetry at university by now, but felt more connected with the Edinburgh writers of his generation, like Norman McCaig or Robert Garriach, writing the nuances of the capital city I knew by heart. Morgan and Glasgow were the kids at school who didn't give a fuck about lessons and could see me soaking up to the teacher. Do you want to have a fag with us or not? If you're not smoking, go and find the kiddies to play with. That's not how I see Glasgow now. Or, it's not only how I see it. After the grand terraces, there is the Hillhead Sports Club playing fields. I had been to the cafe there with my mum pals a place that we knew we could fit our buggies when we had our first cups of tea and coffee and delicately held our weeks-old babies, dreading doing nappy changes out of the house, sweating and scoffing crisps, breastfeeding hunched and tense, trying to get the latch right, trying to hold up floppy wee heads, trying to keep someone from dying while chatting with a cup of tea. Across the playing fields is Gart Naval Hospital, I was sent there when May was six weeks old because I'd started bleeding again. 
We were supposed to be going to my parents to stay over for my dad's birthday and he was driving through to collect us. He ended up driving to the hospital and sitting in the car park while I had yet another stranger in about me. It was fine. Dad got to stretch his granddad muscles and hold the fluffy brush-headed me while I ate yet more crisps and then he drove us back to the flat. Grandma's memories, my old life, my new life, my old feelings, my new feelings, they pile up on the map. First life, second life, third life, fourth life. After the playing fields and along from the hospital, is the petrol station and Bingham's Pond. We were now opposite Morgan's flat, at the pond he mentions in the poem The Second Life. In the poem it's covered in joyful skaters in January and February and later painted boats in the long light of spring. Overlooking the pond is the hotel where we did our antenatal classes, where I roundly bounced on balls with other women and our babies all floated about inside us. Me, Josie, Chloe, Yusuf, Lotta, Una, Bowen. Bounce, 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 with the sharp cold pond outside the window. Bounce, bounce. Me and I walked down to it, me singing her ba 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 bas and me singing back. Then the ducks, quack, quack, cack, cack. Quack, quack, quack. The um, Bingham's Pond that he talks about, do you know where that is? It's not, um, it's not where the pub is, is it, on Byers Road? Um, what's it called? The old place. Curler's Rest. Yeah. No, it's, um, remember we were at the Pond Hotel for our NCT? Oh, yeah. It's that pond. Right. Where we had lunch. Yes. And it was cold. And it was so cold. But sunny. Yeah. Um, what do you remember about that? I remember um, having shop-bought sandwiches and uh, sitting around on benches and maybe on the floor near the water with the other NCT parents and thinking it would be good to kind of try and make friends with them. I don't know if there were ducks. But yeah, it was lo- it was lovely sunshine, and I was enjoying the. I think it was winter time, wasn't it? But it was nice. March, March was it? Okay, but it must have felt wintry. Um, but there was you know greenery around, and that was pleasant. Yeah, it felt to me like um, you know spring. I think I do think that you know touched in the poem, but that way that spring kind of feels. Um, not just new in terms of uh, not old, but like brand new. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we were sort of doing this new thing. Yeah. With the, because do you remember we sat, we came down. There was like a Marks and Spencers in the garage. Yeah. It was like a petrol station. Yeah. 
we all went and they were like, hey, oh, hi, good good choices, you know, like looking at each other's baskets. Yeah. And like, oh, Percy Pigs, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, as we kind of went around in our little couples. And then we came down to the water because um, folk were wanting, we could go back to the hotel, but folk, you know, we'd been inside all morning and we were going to be inside again and yeah. folk wanted some fresh air. Um. I was like super pregnant and wanted comfort at all times. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I remember we sat down and then some other folk sat further along. Yeah. And they sort of started to gather or something. And you said, let's go and sit with our new friends. And I was like, oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> I was, found it like this situation where you had to. Yeah. Like, these are your friends now. Yeah. It was very strange and tense. Yeah. <laughs> I would have sat by the pond with May, but I could tell she was getting scunnered with the rucksack, so we found a way to cross the four lanes of Great Western Road and into the manicured grass around the Whittingham Court blocks in the smurry rain. The blocks felt tidy, well-kept and lived in. The balconies had plants and the paths were edged. A couple were loading things into a car. Various older ladies came out to get things or feed the birds or go somewhere and were utterly delighted by May, all smoored in a rain suit, picking up the quartz gravel from the edge of the building. She handed stones to me and chatted away to herself. I wanted to go in. I wanted to ask the ladies if they had known this poet in their building. Instead, I stood with my baby in the damp west grey and said thank you every time she gave me a stone. I had known that Morgan lived near us in the West End for a good while. I knew it was near Bingham's Pond from the poem, and then it was mentioned in the bioplay of his life by his friend and fellow poet Liz Lochhead. I was actually in that play at the Tron in 2014. I had the tiniest part imaginable. I literally walked on, sat down and then walked off again but it was an absolute dream to do. The play was performed by three male actors. And then about halfway through, David Mackay as Edwin Morgan describes being in a tea room in the 1920s with his mum and his auntie. A woman walked in dressed in dapper men's clothes. I looked dead into the audience and slowly took a seat. His mum and auntie are sniffy, pitying, but the child Edwin Morgan is elated. Though he didn't understand it at the time, it was the elation of actually seeing another queer person living their life, existing. 
and then off I smooled, folding my newspaper to return to the 30-degree dressing room in the July heat in my three-piece wool suit. I often wonder where that tea room was, because it is the same Glasgow after all. The Glasgow where I stand beside my daughter as she chooses a stone from the ground is the same Glasgow where Edwin Morgan was a child, a teenager, an adult. How many maps of the place did he have, layered on top of one another by age, by theme? The Glasgow of his earliest years would be a map made by his parents, just as I make maze. We go to the places that she will enjoy, but I choose the ways. I remember when I went to university in Edinburgh at 18, I was amazed to discover the physical connections between the places I used to go with my parents. As a child, you're a passenger in the city, trundled from place to place. My first uni term was about finding my own ways from Holyrood Park to the Poetry Library, the Commonwealth Pool to Princess Street. I wonder if Glasgow changed at all for Morgan in his first years at uni. Whether staying at home in Rutherglen meant his city hardly grew. And then, suddenly... The war. An entirely different map, place, people as he served in the Middle East. After five years as a medical clerk in Egypt and Suez, Palestine and Lebanon, he was demobbed back to the same old, more old, same grey, more grey Glasgow. He found it hard settling back in. The streets and the rooms, the lecture halls and libraries... He said, It was very, very hard starting again after being away doing completely non-intellectual things for such a long time and I didn't do well at all, at least not to begin with when I came back. I wondered, in fact, whether I should go on with university work. I just had this terrible restlessness and not knowing whether I wanted to settle or not to any one job. But then a new map of Glasgow does start to plot itself around him. Gay Glasgow. In James McGonagall's biography of Morgan, Beyond the Last Dragon, it's fascinating to read about the locations of Glasgow's gay scene, the bars and cafes and toilets. One that struck me was a cafe Morgan described near Buchanan Street bus station. He said... An upstairs place with a toilet, and really pretty well anything went on. It was obviously very, very risky, but people did go there and enjoy this, and you could see a dozen or more people there at any one time. The invisibility of this scene in plain sight was such that even Morgan's poems about the double life of the city were somehow almost deliberately not understood. The most stark of these poems is Glasgow Green, another from his collection, The Second Life. The poem is set on Glasgow Green, an enormous green space to the east of the city centre, which is now a park, but which was still used as a drying green at the time the poem was written in 1963. It starts almost as a film, in the dark of a moonless night, where there's only cigarette glows, and placeless shouts, 
and the terrifying direct speech whispered, What do you mean see me again? Do you think I came here just for that? I'm no finished with you yet. I can get the boys to you, they're no that far away. You wouldn't like that, eh? Look, there's no two ways about it. Christ, but I'm going to have you, Mac, if it takes all night. Turn over, you bastard, turn over, I'll cut the scene. But it is not a film. It is not even, the poem says, a delicate nightmare that you can wake from. It is a real place and a real horror. And then that real place in the daylight is utterly different, with women watching and children running and washing blowing. Two places, one place. But despite that scene, despite Despite the line, turn over, you bastard, turn over. Despite the way the poem asks, how shall the race be served? It shall be served by loneliness as well as by family love. It shall be served by the hunter and hunted in their endless chain as well as by those who turn back the sheets in peace. Despite all that... The poem was taught in schools for decades while homosexuality was a crime, while promoting it in schools was a crime. Teachers, pupils, examiners, parents looked neither left nor right and found in it a story of what? Happiness and sadness? Longing? What? I am reminded of my teacher, Mrs Todd, doing the Seamus Heaney poem Blackberry Picking with us in S4. We went through the imagery, the glossy purple clots, the sweet flesh leaving stains upon the tongue and a lust for, new line, picking. I remember Mrs Todd asking what the imagery reminded us all of. Blackberry picking, Mrs Todd. Could, she suggested, the imagery be sexual? Could the poem be about a loss of innocence, souring of the natural, sexual, sensual pleasures of youth? Mrs Todd was, we thought, obsessed with sex. Somehow, Scottish culture, mainstream Glasgow culture, was universally that class of idiot 15-year-olds. I think our problem in that class was partly that we couldn't believe Mrs Todd knew anything about sex, and partly that neither did we. We had no name to put to our feelings and desires. We couldn't look directly at them, we couldn't even see them. We had the tram tracks of she fancies him and he fancies her and nothing on either side, nothing down the track either. We had only the horrible, noisy dark of school discos which were, for some reason, referred to as events. Terrifying. Events. And even more, this Seamus Heaney was in a school book, an exam curriculum, and could, therefore, not to be the sort of person who had lusts for anything other than words or literature or, at a push, blackberries. Morgan's poem, Glasgow Green, managed to be about a palimpsest of seeing and unseeing, 
and at the same time to be itself a palimpsest where there is one meaning in the daylight and another meaning in the dark, for those who had eyes accustomed to the dark. Clean linen hiding the dirty linen, but the dirty linen can still flash through. And there were those accustomed to the dark of the Scottish attitude to homosexuality who could read it in its entirety. People who could see through the 20th century Scottish murk about anything that wasn't what Morgan describes as beds of married love. And given that the beds of married love were officially all twin, with long nighties and striped pyjamas, even married love was a stretch. Christopher White didn't like the darkness of Scottish sexual attitudes and so spent a lot of his young adulthood living in Europe. He was one of those who recognised in Morgan a gay poet. Like Morgan, White was a Scottish gay lecturer and poet and was therefore the perfect candidate for the interview which would eventually split Morgan's career in two, the half in the dark and the half in the light. And it was the light that Morgan wanted by then, in 1990. He ended his poem seven decades from that same year. At seventy I thought I had come through, like parting a bead curtain in port side, to something that was shadowy before, figures and voices of late times that might be surprising yet. The beads clash faintly behind me as I go forward. No candlelight, please keep that for Europe. Switch the whole thing right on. When I go in, I want it bright. I want to catch whatever is in there in full sight. So in 1990, at one of those magical decade turns which meant so much to Morgan, White published an interview in which Morgan went into clear, honest detail about his sexuality. He talked about his early understanding of his sexuality, about unrequited love in the war and enjoyable but otherwise meaningless sex in the war. He was a man who wasn't willing to write with anyone else in the house, so it is a bit surprising to read of him and a comrade having muffled, regular, speedy sex on a camp bed in a barracks room with dozens of sleeping men around. Such activity was a court-martial offence, but he went ahead and did it anyway. He talked in the interview as well about John Scott, about their transformative love. He openly credits experiences with John as inspiration for his most famous love poems, which he had addressed to the genderless you to avoid the internal censors of a Scottish readership squinting through the dark. Through this interview, Morgan becomes Glasgow Green. His daytime self was award-winner, rule-follower, punctilious professor of English, but here he reveals what has been there all along. A man who has been living half in the dark of secrecy. His sexuality is now the light. The day, the park and the women passing and the children, it is open, as it should be. I think 15-year-old Ishbel would have been scared to know what blackberry picking was about. 
She would have been scared to understand the complete and utter centrality, earth-shattering centrality of love and sex to individuals and to culture. And Scottish culture, while it had grudgingly accepted heterosexual sex, was just as scared as a virgin 15-year-old to acknowledge its own queerness. Glasgow, Glasgow Green, that place near Buchanan bus station were all perfectly normal, straight places and lines and places and lines and nothing to worry about here. Um, so, yeah, you said renovating slums. Yes. And um, you've been in Glasgow for a long time now. Ten years? Ten years, pretty much exactly. Because you were going to do Movember, weren't you? I, I, yeah, that was what I was selling to you, so that I gave myself some time. But I moved in October in the end. Yeah, so this October you'll have been here for a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you feel like your interaction with Glasgow changed when, when we had me? Um, yes, I do. Uh, because there have been various different stages where I've been outdoors with her doing things that I wouldn't have done before. So I had a lot of long walks with her in the park um, and I really got to know the botanics uh, in the winter, last winter, um, when she was asleep in the buggy and um, also the Kelvin Grove Park as well a bit. Um, I I felt a lot kind of closer to those and and I was like, I didn't feel like I could necessarily listen to music because I wanted to know if she woke up so I was just looking at the trees and looking at the birds and looking at the water and looking at the shapes of the walls stone walls around me um, and the houses Um, and I think I would have been monumentally bored if I hadn't recently learnt how to um, do Buddhist meditation but luckily I had that skill just in time so yeah that was definitely a way a new way for me to be in the city my city is new and old I learn new old ways to see it and old new ways in 2020 I am embellishing the map inscribing worrying hospital trips alongside places I had parties drawing slowly toddled roots to find nice stones over walks with a crying pal, drawing the building where Auntie Margaret lived over the motorway that replaced it and that took us to the hospital to give birth, putting a star everywhere my daughter spoke a new word, a woof or a quack or a ball or a mummy, next to places where Morgan wrote a poem or Greek Thompson built a house, or Margaret MacDonald made a panel, or Libby Walker drew some trees. My loves, Morgan's loves, his art, my art, their art, in the light. I'm getting older, and I'm learning my city better. I'm creating it better. I'm learning the words to describe it, just as my daughter learns the words to describe this world and any world. And these words and worlds are what we'll explore next for Wayne's, computers, Martians and poets. Learning words and worlds. 
making maps. <laughs>